Well, good morning. So, Brandon texted me. I, I missed something in the announcements. I know he's listening, so I'm going to make fun of him now. Uh, so, if you are going to Legacy, um, and you're like, I feel like I should have more information right now. Well, he's uh, communicating through email. So, whatever email that you signed up with, you need to be checking that. So, that's just a another announcement, but if you will, go ahead and open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Let's, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Please illuminate our eyes. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who walk in faith who serve in faith, who give in faith. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this morning's message is entitled Outside of Eden. We're in chapter 4 and we're continuing our, our series, The Gospel of Genesis, following the lineage of the snake crusher. The gospel is the message of God's good news of deliverance from sin. Last week we were introduced to sin. And that's what this whole book is telling us about. The whole Bible is telling us about this. And we're seeing how God is orchestrating all these things together. These are not random stories, but he's taking you somewhere. Do you remember what we said last week where, where the first promise of Jesus is in the Bible? The promise of Genesis 3.15. I told you we're going to start doing it, and I'm going to keep my promise every week. So if you forgot or weren't here, there's a cheat sheet on the screen. But what is the first promise of Jesus in the Bible? Let's say it together. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Let's say it again. What's the first promise? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The snake crusher is Jesus Christ. And he's going to do, as Romans 16.20 says, one day crush Satan under his feet. And as we read these stories, I want you to ask yourself, what all these, all these stories, what's the story of Cain and Abel have to do with Genesis 3.15? Lord willing, you're reading ahead. That's why we stay in books, that you could have a place to study. But when you get to Noah, what does this have to do with Genesis 3.15? When you get to Abraham, what does this have to do with Genesis 3.15? What does Joseph in Egypt have to do with Genesis 3.15? Because I promise you, every one of them do. And what I want to do is I want to give you lenses by which to read the Bible to help understand that these aren't just stories of guys doing good things. Matter of fact, it's stories of fallen guys doing bad things and God working in spite of them. So before we dive in, let's stop and let's ask who this original audience is receiving this message for the first time. You'll remember that it's the recently released Israelites. They've been released from Egypt after 430 years of slavery. We'll get there here in a couple of weeks where God promises that. And what they've seen so far is the mighty hand of God move. 
They've seen God through the plagues. Each plague has to do with one of the Egyptian gods, and God's just dropping smackdowns on them one after another. And then Egypt finally says, hey, just leave. Get out of here. And they, they leave one of the richest countries in the world because Egypt is throwing gold at them. Everybody's, they, they, it's said that they plunder Egypt. They're, they're like, hey, take the gold and run. They, they get out, and then Egypt's like, you know what? We need our slaves back, because you're talking about possibly a couple million people. They're not used to doing all that work. So Pharaoh, he starts to pursue them, and he gets close. And I mean, this is the greatest war machine in world history to this point. And God separates them with a fire. He splits the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. God then removes the barrier. Egypt, they follow, and God crushes Pharaoh, who claims himself to be a god, along with his entire army in the water. Imagine how confused they felt, these Israelites. Like, what is going on? So now they're... For days they've been following a pillar of cloud, uh, a pillar of fire by night, and a, a pillar of cloud by day. Wherever the cloud stops, they stop. Wherever it goes, they go. And they're now at the foot of Mount Sinai. You know where we get the Ten Commandments. God falls on it, and there's just smoke billowing for days from the mountain. Their leader walks up it, and God says from the mountaintop, "If they touch it, they'll die." And so they're just waiting. They get into a little mischief with the whole golden calf thing, but they're waiting. Like, what is going on? And then God, then God sends Moses down with these books. He sends them down with Exodus. He sends them down with Leviticus. He sends them down with Genesis. So that's, that's what's going on. And the book of Genesis is telling Israel questions that they have. Who are they? Who is this God? Why does this God choose them? Genesis 3.15. They find out that this God is long-suffering. He's loving. He loves them despite the failures of their forefathers. And Remember, I told you one of the things that, one of the markers for something's happening in the book is genealogies, right? And as the genealogies of history unfold, they know that this story, and in, in they're starting to learn where they come from, but they want to know what we should want to know about. Who is the snake crusher? And we should be asking the same thing they're asking, how will God fulfill this promise of the snake crusher? For them, was it Moses? How is he going to do it? So here's what's true. That's kind of setting the stage. God will always preserve his promise. It looks like he won't. Cain kills Abel, right? God will always preserve his promise. So what do we do? We are to flee from sin. We are to rejoice in God. And we are to give to God our best as a faith offering. So we're going to walk through all of Genesis 4 very quickly this morning, and we're going to take it in small chunks. So the first chunk we're going to look at is um, verses 1 through 2, 
and we're going to see the first family. Now, Abraham, nope, wrong guy, read the words. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. Adam and Eve, they're driven out of the garden. Remember that from chapter 3, um, for their sin. And now they've got to figure life out in a fallen world. The curse of sin, it's, it's, it sweeps all throughout the story. And at the end, we finally get a little ray of hope, a little ray of hope out of the darkness. In verse 1, Eve conceives and she faces the one of the curses of the fall. And just by the way, childbearing is not a curse of the fall. The curse is that there would be pain in childbearing. One of the blessings of the garden is the ability to have children. So childbearing is the curse, not the child. Eve um, names this first child. Um, th this name's to be a blessing. She says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. There's a lot of wordplay going on here um, that we miss in English. Um, so Cain means to possess. And she says, I've gotten, which also is the same idea of possession. But um, the words are different, but the words in Hebrew sound the same. And uh, Cain is basically, it means to acquire, to possess, to gain. I think possibly this has to do with the promise of the snake crusher. Maybe she thought possibly that this, this Cain could be this child of promise and she is now in possession of that promise as she holds him in her arms. Well, we know you have to fast forward all the way to Mary to get to the child of promise. But I think, I think that's some of the stuff going on with the name here. Later, she has another son. His name's Abel. There is no real information about Abel's birth. We get his name, and it means a vapor, and um, a vapor, a breath. And this really adds to his story, right? Life is but a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. He's struck down too early. So the boys, they grow up into men, and Cain, he stepped right into the family business. He's a worker of the ground, just like Adam. Abel, on the other hand, he's, he's industrious, he, he breaks out on his own. He, he figures something new out. Think about this. Everything is new, and he figures out herding. He, he figures out how to herd sheep. And uh, he's, he's, we see here Cain and Abel and Adam as they work the ground and they, they, they herd animals. What they're doing is they're asserting dominion over creation as they were commanded to do. So let's look at verse 3. God rejects Cain's offering. In a course of time, so a long span of time has passed, Cain brought to the Lord, and this is Yahweh Lord, that's what the L-O-R-D means, an offering of the first fruit of the ground. Uh, nope, I'm, I added words. An offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Sorry for misreading that. That's because I had something on the brain that we're about to talk about. 
Um, I think as we read this, we should rightfully have many questions, shouldn't we? About uh, what's going on here. Like, here's a good question. When were offerings established in the Bible? It does not tell us. But I'll tell you later, from later on, the way that God's talking to Cain, it would make us believe that offering was something they had been doing. So offering, I don't think this is the first offering. However, this is the first recorded offering. The next question is, why was Cain's offering rejected? Maybe he didn't know that the gifts of the ground wouldn't be accepted by God. I think God's conversation with Cain in the next section shows that it wasn't a matter of the offering. It was a matter of the heart. And God gives Cain a chance to make it right. I've heard it preached a couple of times, and so I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about this, that Cain's offering was rejected because it was, it was not a blood sacrifice. That does not make sense for a couple of reasons. The first is that God set up an offering system in Exodus and Leviticus, which these people now possess, where you can offer uh, grain offerings. You can offer the first fruit of the field. So why would he reject it because it was not a blood offering? Um, also, why would the fruit of the ground be rejected if God created Adam with a very specific job? What was that? To work the ground. That, again, doesn't make sense. The rejection was not the sacrifice, but the heart of the giver. God is concerned with the quality of the heart, not the quality of the gift. And furthermore, I'm just going to say that the, the, the blood stuff that people kind of connect this to has to do with sin offering that's set up in the temple for the people. Like, that's not going on here. So we know, all we know is that it's a sacrifice, it's an offering, and it's been established in Leviticus and Exodus that, a, uh, that food from the ground is, is an acceptable offering. So th this is what we know that God does desire in our offerings, Hosea 6.6. 6. I mean, God tells us flat out, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He cares about your heart. Are you, are you pursuing him in knowledge? Are you following him in love? Matthew uh, 5, 24, Jesus says this, God in the flesh, talking about offerings. Leave your gift before the altar and go first to be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The material of the gift is inconsequential if the heart of the giver is wrong. God does not need your gift. He doesn't want your gift if it's given out of duty instead of out of love. He has no need for your gifts. What he desires is a heart of worship and a heart of love that overflows in thankfulness. I like what 2 Corinthians 9, talking about the same issue, 9, 6. So if you're a note taker, I didn't put it on there because it's so long. But 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says this. The point is this. God is telling us the point is this. 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How much? Doesn't say. Just a cheerful giver. That's what he wants. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God loves a cheerful giver. God is concerned about your gifts of praise and thanksgiving. And God has no regard for your gift, for your tithe, for your offering, if it's given out of compulsion, if it's given out of duty, if it's given out of reluctance. Just hold on to it till you get your heart right. In your giving, you want to you see some Baptists start squirming? From, from what we just read in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, in your giving, God does promise blessings. He does. Like, you can't get around it. He does promise blessings. He's given you everything and you're, you're giving, you're offering, you're thanksgiving, when you give it back, what you're doing is saying, God, I trust you more than I trust stuff. I trust your provision more than I trust what I can provide for myself. That's what he wants. With Cain, we're about to take a second, and we're going to look at the quality of his gift. And I think the quality of his gift, though, gives insight to the quality of his heart. So Cain gives from, some of your translations will say, some of the fruit of the ground. Contrast that with Abel's offering. God goes out of his way to tell us how good Abel's offering was in verse 4. He says this, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. Abel gave the best of his flock. He gave the firstborn of his flock. He gave the best pieces of meat. He didn't hold back any of the good portion there for himself. When you look at Cain, does Cain give of his first fruits? Just says he gave. Why was Abel's offering accepted? It all has to do with the quality of the heart. And the heart, his gift reflects his praise. As you're reading Hebrew, uh, Genesis, I think you'll find um, Hebrews chapter 11 a, a great companion to understand what is going on in the book. So Hebrews 11.4 talks about Abel says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Why was Abel's offering sac- uh, more acceptable? Because it had blood? Because he was better? Because he was less sinful? Because by faith. By faith, his offering was more acceptable. The sentence goes on, through which he was commended as righteous. Again, why was he righteous? Because he was awesome? No, he had faith in God. God commended him by accepting his gift. 
God tells us that Abel's gift was accepted because of faith. Faith is the reason that God accepted the offering, and the lack of faith is why Cain's offering was then rejected. It all, you'll find this theme runs through the entirety of the Bible. Why was righteousness accounted to Abraham? By faith. Why is righteousness given to Abel? By faith. Why is Lot? There's no good story about Lot in the Bible. Did you know that? Why was he counted as righteous? Hebrews 11 tells us, because of faith. There's no good in us. Why will we be counted as righteous? Because of faith, because there's good in God. The heart of Cain was what got, caused God not to accept Cain's offering. 1 John 3, 12 talks about this. It says, we should not be like Cain. So if you're going to emulate somebody, not Cain. John wants you to be not Cain. Who was of the evil one. Who was Cain of? The evil one. And he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Again, I want to show you that it's all about the heart. The heart drove Cain to murder Abel. And Cain's heart is why God rejected his offering. Verse 12 tells us that Cain is of the evil one. God knows the heart of the gift giver. It was not the lack of, lack of blood in the offering. It was the lack of faith in the offering. I think the application here is clear. When we worship, it must be out of an overflow of thankfulness that we have for God. I don't think, or I'm sorry, I do think that there is a warning for us here, even though our righteousness is not connected to it. I think we should give of the first fruit of what God has given us. I think he brings that to the top. And um, I don't think we're to give what's left. We're to give to God first, and then we are to use everything else he's given on us. So now we're going to see in this next session, God graciously coming to Cain and giving him an opportunity to make his heart right. So look at verses uh, 5 through 9. <clears throat> God's gracious warning to Cain. So, Cain was very angry, and his face fell. I love that phrase, his face fell. That's exactly what it says, by the way. His face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. So Cain's pride is injured. Cain's very angry. Cain is graced by God coming down to him. Think about this. God did not have to come to Cain. God didn't have to come to Cain. God asked Cain a question. Why has your face fallen? Or... Some of your translations say something like this. It makes more sense to us. Why are you so gloomy? God knew why. It was because of his heart. God warns him in verse 7 with, with another question. He says, if you do well, 
will you not be accepted? I also think this shows that there were sacrifices given prior to this moment because God is appealing to Cain's knowledge of what an acceptable sacrifice is. He says, you, you know, uh, he knows what it is to do right, to do well. And if there's any question, God's about to tell him what it is to not do well. And not doing well is allowing sin to reign. God is warning Cain that he is crouching at the door. He's, 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 he's ready for him. He's poised to pounce like a lion. Many of your translations say that it's desire, talking about sin, it's desire is for you. Mine says it's contrary to you. But both of them mean that, God, that, that sin is wanting to rule over you. I like what John Owen says. He says, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We must constantly, daily be drawing to the throne of grace in prayer, in the word, in silence, being with God, asking for his help, confessing sin. If not, we will be drawn into sin. Draw close to God or you will draw close to sin. Paul tells us in Romans 6:12 like this, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members uh, to sin as an instrument or as tools for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments or as a tool for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Just as God warns Cain, God is warning you that you can't allow sin to reign or you will be overcome by it. I, I feel like Christians do this because I know this. It's like, all right, God, you have my giving. All right, God, you, you have this area of my thought life. All right, God, you have this uh, area of the, the things I watch in TV. God, you have this area. But this area over here is still mine. Having that pet sin is allowing sin to reign in you. Sin is crouching at the door ready to destroy you. People don't go from zero to, to running their family off in, in, in a weekend, right? They don't go from zero to murdering their brother in a field in a weekend. It's because they've allowed sin to reign in that spot. How about instead of giving your tithes and offerings today, how about coming and laying that pet sin on the altar of God and slitting its throat? Give it all to him, or it's got the potential of taking everything from you. God wants all of you. He wants everything about you. Not just Sundays and Wednesdays and the tip that we give them when we come through. He wants all of you. Your sin should not be used, your, your body should not be used for sin because in Christ you've been given a new life. And this intention for this new life that you've been given is to be a piece of God's war chest that he would use it 
wherever you go and with whoever you're with to be advancing his kingdom. But if you're wrapped up in sin, you're, not, you're certainly not going to be wrapped up in worship and you're not going to be wrapped up in advancing God's kingdom and God's purpose in your life. I love what 2 Timothy 2.22 says. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. These are all commands. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those things that the Lord, uh, along with those who call on the Lord for a pure heart. Call on the Lord for a pure heart. Flee from, flee from sin. Pursue love. Pursue faith. Pursue peace. Pursue righteousness. Walk in holiness. And when you fail, know that you have a God who draws near. Cain fell, and what did God do? He drew near. God draws near to us when we were in sin. He doesn't run from us. Confess it and be made right. Flee from sin, pursue God. Look at uh, verses 18, uh, 8 through 16. God re- um, Cain, God rejected Cain's offering, and, and Cain rejects God's warning. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said to him, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from the face I sh- and from your face I shall be hidden. And I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Just pause right there. I just saw this for the first time. God doesn't say that his face will be hidden from him. Cain is choosing to hide his face from God. And we're going to see his, his lineage just fall off into sin here in a minute. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, the vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from his presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Uh, I I gave you all a little hint for when people start falling into sin in the book of uh, Genesis. You see them driven east. So east um, is what direction they came out of the garden and they fell into sin. And then now we're going to see his family lineage here in a second. They go east into the land of Nod and it's about to get real bad real fast. But sin just tells you lies. I'm still caught up on verse 14. Sin just tells you lies. God never told Cain that he would have to hide his face. Cain put that on himself. Cain put that on God. A lot of things that you believe about the Bible aren't true. It's things that you, in all of your knowledge and wisdom, have conjured up in yourself and have put on the Bible. 
the reasons why God will reject you. The only reason God will reject you if you don't put faith in the Son of your faith in the Son of God. We build up all these things in our mind. We tell ourselves all these lies. Cain tells himself a lie. Cain lures his brother out to the field. Cain strikes him down. And this is the first murder in human history. And it's all because Cain's pride was damaged. Abel, he never speaks in the whole story until his blood cries up from the ground. Man, he's a sad character. Abel is an individual who loves God, and he's constantly being affected by everybody else's sin, isn't he? Adam and sinned, and he had to be driven from the garden. He, he didn't get to grow up knowing a life of perfection because of Adam and Eve's sin. He, he gives a good sacrifice by faith. His brother is jealous, and the sin of his brother takes his life. He's killed for it. And the, the, one of the constant questions we're asking is, why do good things happen to bad, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Like, why? That's what the whole book of Habakkuk's about. Why do the evil prosper? Why does this happen? It's because of the fall. Genesis 3. I like what R.C. Sproul says about bad things happening to good people. It's actually a lie. It's only happened once. And he volunteered for it. Jesus is the only one who's ever truly been good, isn't he? And he volunteered for sinful men to take his life so that he could give us eternal life. That's the a, that's a only bad thing that's ever truly happened to a good person. After Cain kills Abel, God comes to Cain and again asks where his brother is. And Cain, unlike his parents, his parents showed shame. They were trying to cover themselves up. He's got zero shame. He's got zero remorse for what he's done. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It could also be translated, am I my brother's guardian? He certainly did not guard his brother. Instead, he tried to hide what happened. This is actually the exact same line of questioning that God gives Adam and Eve in the garden. He calls out to Adam and Eve, where are you? He calls out to Cain, where is your brother? Then after that response, he gives the same question. What have you done? And God goes on to say, the voice of your brother is crying from the ground. The story is truly tragic. It's the first death of man, the first death of one of God's image bearers. And it wasn't at the hands of time. It was at the hands of another image bearer. John, 1 John 3, 12 says this again. We looked at it earlier. We should not be like Cain, who was evil. Um, uh, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. A few sentences before this, John tells us in 1 John 3, 8, he says, whoever makes the practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
He says, Cain is of the evil one. Cain is of the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, we're not saying this part often, but it says, I will put enmity between you and the serpent, between your offspring and the serpent's offspring. Cain proves himself to be in the line of the serpent. There's enmity between him and his brother. That's what, that's what 1 John is telling us. He's telling us to be ready that the world's going to hate us because we're going to be righteous because of the Spirit living in us, and the world's not going to like it because they're unrighteous. They're going to kill us for it. They're going to hurt us for it. They're going to lie about us because of it. And he use, uses Cain as the example. The seed of the serpent drew first blood. God here in John, in 1 John is telling us that just like he drew first blood then, we're still going to be injured because of it. The world's going to hate us. Could you imagine how this original audience is hearing this for the first time? Like, you know, the name of Cain kind of made you think that Cain was going to be of, he, he may even be the seed of the woman here. But his actions have proved that he's the seed of the serpent. He killed his, Israel might be asking the question, is this where we come from? Is this, a, is it, did God's promise, did God already forget his promise? Is God even going to bring his promise about? Is, is, what's happening? Look at verse 17. We're going to see Cain's genealogy, and I'm going to call this the, the seed of the serpent because we see it fall deeper and deeper into depravity. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and born Enoch. And when he had built a city, he called the name of that city after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad um, fathered, this is a name right here, Mahujil. If you say it confidently, people believe you know what it says, but I can't even try that one. And Mahujiel fathered Methushiel, and Methushiel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, and his brother was named Jubal, and um, he was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. And Zillah also bore uh, Tubal Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He seems like a nice guy. Adam doesn't kill Cain, even though that's what Cain deserves. Whatever mark God put on Adam, or put on Cain, Adam honored it. Cain takes a wife, and yes, it's his sister. It's hard to believe that Adam and Eve would allow Cain to take one of their children after already killing one. So maybe Cain had already been married to her. Maybe this isn't a linear set of events. We don't know how many uh, daughters Adam and Eve had. The Bible doesn't share that information. I've heard people before speculate that God put other people on earth and Adam and Eve were just first. 
if that's the case, then it would not be true that in Genesis 3.20, that Eve is the mother of all living. That would make God a liar there. Also, I think, I hear people talk about this. I think the heart of it is one, like um, incest is weird, but there's two people on earth, then there's three, then there's four. Like, it is what it is. But then the second part is, I think a lot of it is based on racism. That people don't want their family trees to connect to people of different ethnicities. Here's the deal. It is ignorant to be racist. Just, it is. We all come from the same mother and father, Adam and Eve. And then God destroys the world in the flood, and it happens again. It just is. So we're about to see an explosion of life. And this list only follows the firstborn. But in chapter 5, we see these genealogies. And it's a new set of genealogies. And these guys live up to 900 years. Remember, this is a plea, a, a plea, a pre-flood world. And these people are having multiple children. They're living up to 900 years. Their potentiality for having many, many kids is very, very high. Right? So could you imagine how quickly the world would populate if you were living for 900 years? And let's just call half of that childbearing years. It could happen very quickly. Um, Cain's line is very interesting. You see the first city built by Cain. And I don't think this is a praise um, because the command in Genesis 1.28, not that God's against cities, but the command for Genesis 1.28 is that we would spread across the earth, that we would spread dominion across the earth. I think um, Cain is building a city because he's afraid somebody's going to take his life. He's fortifying himself. And this is a distortion of God's command. In verse 19, we see another distortion of God's command for marriage. And this is the first polygamist in the Bible. Notice it, it doesn't condemn it. It just tells you what took place. Like, uh, it just, it's just telling you what happened here. And um, it's done by Lamech. And Lamech is, uh, means a wild man or the striker down, which would be appropriate because Lamech has a bloodthirst. Think about the song that he sings over his, over his wives. There's two songs in the Bible. The first song is when God creates Eve and Adam Caesar and calls her woman. Like, whoa, man, he's Caesar. And he says, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. He, he writes her a little, a little ditty. Listen to this ditty. It's devastating. Adam sings a song over his bride while Lamech sings a song over his brides. And look at the depravity. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. Like, that's a nice way to start any conversation with your bride. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. From the passage, I can't tell if he killed one or two men. I, I think it's, it's two. But he's, he's bragging about his ability to revenge himself in a greater way than Yahweh God. He's bragging about his strength. He compares himself to Cain. 
And he's not, Cain's like, oh no, this is bad. Like, I realize now this is bad after God comes to him. There's none of that for Lamech. Lamech is boasting in being more wicked than Cain. It's, it's sad how quickly and how devastating sin is. One of his, I, I, there's some interesting things here, though, with his children. One child is, uh, creates a tent system to follow herd gra- grazing animals. That's still used today. The Bedouins still live that way. It's pretty cool. Another is the father of instruments. Another is uh, the father of metallurgy. Like, he's using bronze to make things, or he's making bronze. Um, Even living in sin, we see the image of God bursting forth in creativity, don't we? And think about how fallen and gross our world is. Just the nastiness people use art for. But at the same time, man, think about over the last hundred years, just the ingenuity, the art, the ability to, 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 to communicate, just bursting forward. Even in our depravity, God is showing us that we are image bearers. It's, it's, it's really a neat thing. We, we see his creativity in us. So, but again, the Lord doesn't leave us. He intervenes. Look at this last bit. We're going to see the lineage of the snake crusher, right? Remember, I told you, genealogies either introduce us to a new character or work an old character out of the story. So Cain's, Cain's people, we're, we're, we're not focusing on them anymore. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. I also like how she low-key said, Cain's dead to me too. So to Seth, also a son was born, and his name was Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So before I jump into it, I'm not going to deal with it next week. So if this is one of the things you get like hyped on, we're not going to talk about the Nephilim next week. And if you know there's a debate on if the Nephilim are the, child, the children of men and angels, yep, that's weird. Um, but I think through study, we've only been introduced to two people groups, the sons of Cain and the sons of Abel. I think it's those family groups coming together, and that's where the giants come from. I think the understanding of the giants being the sons of uh, angels, that's, that only comes from the book of Enoch, which is not a book of the Bible. Um, could that be? Yes. Is that the, the primary reading of that in church history? Yes. Do I think it's right? No. But if you want to talk about it, we can have a lively debate at the back and when we're done. It'll be fun. But that's not... The point of the story here, though, is don't be like Cain. The point is that God fulfills his promise. God graciously gave Adam and Eve another son. His name's Seth. Seth means appointed or anointed. Where we see the lineage of Cain spiraling out of control into sin. Look what we see about the sons of Seth. Chapter 5, we really dig into them. Um, And it says, at that time, people began calling on the name of the Lord. That's the lineage of Seth. 
whereas sin is the lineage of, of uh, Cain. Not to say that they weren't walking in sin. Though Seth himself was not the snake crusher, God is showing us whose line, whose genealogy, uh, we're going to follow for the rest of the story about how he's going to bring about redemption. That's, that's what's happening. These, these long genealogies have a point. Do they talk about every person in the line? No. But they're showing us how we get from, from Adam to the actual snake crusher, Jesus Christ. The story of redemption is, is, is how this child of promise would one day reverse the curse of sin. And part of the curse is that man would now die both physically and spiritually. But Jesus Christ, the snake crusher, God in the flesh, he came to save humanity by taking the curse of death on himself, and in so doing, he brings life. And through the power of his death, burial, and resurrection, he, he's done that for us. And if you accept that by faith, you will have that life. Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted? Was it by, because he was righteous? He was made righteous by his faith in God. How are we made righteous? Not because we're awesome, not because we're great. We're actually fallen and, and, and living in sin, deserving death and deserving hell. But we're made righteous through faith in the Son of God. If you want to have a conversation about that, I'm going to be down front. But let's pray together, and we're going to end in a song of praise.